Next week we will resume our series in, in Genesis. But this morning we're just going to close up our, our Easter period with the title, What Happens Now? from Luke chapter 24 verses 36 to 53. What happens now? The UK takes a vote whether to stay or not in the EU, the European Union, and the vote is to leave. Shockwaves are felt throughout the world and people ask themselves, what happens now? The US has a vote between a seasoned liberal politician and a conservative businessman who no one gave an outside chance. Surprisingly, the long shot wins the election and the US, along with the rest of the world, ask themselves, what happens now? 2,000 years ago, Jesus appears and has an impact like no one else. He lives, he heals, he teaches, yet he is crucified in horrendous circumstances. On the third day, however, he rises from the dead, from the grave, and appears to his disciples over, over a period of 40 days. And these disciples must have been asking themselves during this whole time, what happens now? In the Gospels, we've had the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And that was good. It was great. It was fantastic. It's unbelievable. Amazing. And it's the most amazing ending, if ever, there was one. There's nothing like it. But if this was the end of the story, we could simply finish, you know, we finish eating the popcorn and just wait till the, the credits are rolling down the screen, walk out of the movie theatre, wonderfully entertained, and say to ourselves, well, that was great, wasn't it? What a fantastic movie. And return to our lives, business as usual which appears to be what the disciples were about to do when they went on with their own lives, some returned fishing and so on. Speaking of movies, of movies, here is a quote from a movie that I thought was quite interesting. I don't believe in, and this is the quote, I don't believe in happy endings. Happy endings are just stories that haven't finished yet, end of quote. I think that uh, I think the quote sort of kills the old fairy tale ideal, doesn't it? And the old fairy tale ideal, the the ending of a fairy tale is usual, and they lived happily ever after. The ministry of Jesus was ending, and on the cross he uttered the words, "It is finished." We focused on this on Good Friday, but for the disciples, rather than finished, their lives were about to get a whole lot more interesting. Is there anything more tragic in life than an unfinished life? A life that had a great foundation but was never brought to completion. In uh, South America, 
as we drove around, we saw a lot of houses that were always left unfinished. There's always that second story that was going to be added up. The front uh, fence, the gate that was going to be finished. But because of economic conditions and everything else, it was never, <laughs> we never got around to it. Other priorities sort of took hold. That's in the material scene, but what about the Christian life? If you look at our lives, we've spoken in the past about our lives being on a foundation and, and this building that continues to go on with materials, with the right materials, but what if the work doesn't get done? We know the promise, we've heard the promise that he who started a good work will bring it to completion, that he will finish it. We know that. But we also know that of so many people who have started strong in the faith, that were impacted by the gospel, that were convicted of their sinfulness and wanted to start a brand new life with God. God gave them that start, but somewhere along the way they became sidetracked and the spiritual life they could have had the possibilities in their walk with God, their family, their career, other things started like the parable of the sower. Other things started to take priorities, the things of this world. And that, that, that first love, that warmth, that hot for God, type of thing suddenly became lukewarm and so that that project, that ideal, that purpose sort of sits unfinished in a vacant field, unfinished. That certainly would have been the case with the disciples if Jesus had simply died on the cross, rose from the dead and just ascended to the Father straight away. He, re- he really, I suppose, would have left them with a deep sense of a lostness, a lost direction in life. Not really knowing what it's all about. What, what happens now, boys and girls? What are we going to do now? What was all that about? There were simply too many loose ends and not not loose ends from the Saviour's point of view. No, that was finished, that was done, that was sealed. No. But from their own lack of faith and from their doubts and and all of that, that, that's what I'm referring to the loose ends in 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 themselves. So Jesus used these few days, these 40 days to really hone in on the things that he really wanted them to learn again. The things that he taught them, this was revision time. Now they would have to pay special attention. It was a bit like the revision classes we used to have with uh, the teachers before exams where the students well, they don't really pay a lot of attention during class, but they just got to really hone in on, on that special class that the teacher gives before exam time and sort of gives them an outline of 
what to expect in the exams and all of that. You really pay attention to that. You make sure you turn up. And exam time will come. And exam time for the disciples did come. It was about to begin. And Jesus was giving them another chance after having failed the first test that had to do with the cross. They all left. Except John, of course, but what is it that we have to get right? What do, what do we have to do? What do we have to really understand so that we don't fail the exam? So that when the exam does come that we don't sit there as we are first reading unashamed and confident before our Lord. So in these verses, let's go through some essentials of what us as Christians are to do until that day when he returns. Verse 39, the Saviour. Verse 39, the Saviour. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I love that phrase that Jesus used here to his disciples. He says, it is I myself. And even, even then, some of them continue to doubt. You know, this sort of, okay, what's going on here? It is me, guys. It is I myself. So he asked them for something to eat. He had to go through great lengths to prove that he was who he said he was. To let the disciples know that this is not a, some, some vision. This is not an illusion. This is not some ghost story that's going to make it on television as a, as a series or as a movie, something they are dreaming. No, this is real. This is real. And it's really, really amazing. And it was these visible proofs that had to be there. They could have to see to be convinced, to be convicted that this was indeed Jesus, to remove all doubt and move and journey towards belief. It is, of course, important that you you don't misunderstand visibility as a replacement for faith. Thomas was sceptical and wouldn't believe until he saw firsthand. He had to see in order to believe. This is different than what Thomas was dealing with. But this type of visibility complements our faith. It's not that we have to see in order to believe. Instead, when we see, we simply verify that what we believe is confirmed by what we see. It confirms what we already believe. Our sight confirms that what we have believed, what we have been taught, is true. Sure, it almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? But at these times we have to rely on the visible to reaffirm, not replace. 
say, if we, for example, happen to pray for healing, when all the doctors have given up and we pray for healing and the person is healed, are we surprised or we just simply say, thank you, Lord, for answering our prayers? It is a confirmation of the prayer that we have been asking God to do something and then when it happens, don't be surprised. It's simply an acknowledgement. Say, well, thank you, Lord. That was fantastic. Thank you. So Jesus shows them the visible signs of life, his scars, his ability to eat, his voice and other visible things people do in, in a physical body. His visibility was proof of his reality and it affirmed their belief. This is Jesus. It is, it is Jesus. It is him himself. That's him in the flesh. Well, sort of, but a glorified body. This is the Saviour who died for our sins, who lived in the flesh, now in a glorified body, is about to ascend to the Father. The Saviour who dies for us, and this is a Saviour that is worth dying for, as indeed the disciples will find out soon. So we have to hone in on the Saviour. That is, that is the, the central part of what we're about. Look at Jesus. Look at him. Over and over and over again, look at him. Then comes the scriptures, verses 44 to 46. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures and he told them this is what is written. You've got to love the fact that Jesus opened their minds to scriptures. Many people read the Bible just like any other book, like a golden book I suppose, but their, their minds are still closed. It's, it's still, it still doesn't make sense. It is the work of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to open the minds so that what we read is truth. They needed to know that in this case the written word and the living word are the same thing. It was not some coded secret plot that you have to add the numbers and, and you have to go through the verses and all these numerology type of stuff and say, there it is, there's the code, now we can understand. No! If you read the Scriptures with your eyes open to truth, you will see that it was all there from the start. We need to know that. Be reminded of that. Be reminded of this truth again and again that Jesus and his ministry have a foundation in the Old Testament. And ultimately, ultimately, we're talking about the same God who is in operation. The same God who is working. And Jesus' death on the cross wasn't some unhappy, tragic miscarriage of justice, some unhappy ending it was in the plan of God from day one, from the day that sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3. The Old Testament 
is the Bible that Jesus read. So if the Old Testament was good enough for Jesus, we ignore it at our own peril. And we need to be to become familiar with the Word of God. This is why in our church we try and, and give you the, the whole of the counsel of God. It's all good. It's all the Word of God, all of it. We base what we believe on the truth of what God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. And the best place to study God and His plan for us is the Bible itself. Jesus pointed to them pointed to the scriptures again and again and again. It was all written, the word of God. This is why Bible study is important, it is crucial, it is essential. You do it in your own time, we do it as we come together so that God will reveal his purposes to us as we read. May truth be real, may we own it, may we live it. The third thing is the gospel. Verse 47, the gospel. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What does gospel mean? Gospel simply means good news, which is based on God's word. It is, of course, assumed that having the right scriptures will result in the same uniform gospel being preached throughout the world and the same mission evangelistic strategy will be throughout the world with the same passion, with the same clarity, the same truth everywhere. But unfortunately, history has shown us, church history has shown us that that is not always the case. There is always someone coming up with a new understanding, a new revelation a new way to look at an old story and a new emphasis and sure enough, they have new followers. That was already a problem. This is nothing new today. We see it everywhere, I know. But this was already a problem in the early church. And this is why the Apostle Paul was, was highlighting to the, to, the church, to the churches in Galatia. In his letter to the Galatians, he said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, but even if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than, other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That should be like a, the last nail on the coffin of any culture and any sects that are out there claiming the latest progressive revelation. Okay, that, that, that should be the end of it. And I include the Mormons, the JWs, the Muslims, everybody else who had some supernatural revelations or whatever that goes on. It's not there, it is condemned from Scripture. The church struggled through many theological issues for the next 1500 years. But even then, it is a sad case to note that even after the dramatic events of the Reformation, and, and uh, it is actually 500 years this year of the Reformation, 
the events that led to Martin Luther nailing his thesis on, on the door of the chapel. It is a sad to know that even after all of that, that the church still struggled to get their doctrine and theology right. It was actually almost 250 years after the Reformation that, they, that the church realised that this gospel needed to be preached to the heathens throughout the world. 250 years. Around the year 1790, William Carey had a burden in his heart for the lost of the world. I wonder how he got that burden. There were no missionary societies and there was no real missionary intent. Nobody cared, nobody bothered. When Carey proposed this subject for discussion at the... uh, to the Baptist, to the minister's meeting, a Dr. Ryland uh, shouted to him, shouted to Kerry, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Of course, (laughs) that wouldn't shut Kerry down. The rest, as they say, is history. But that was the type of belief that reigned around that day. They don't need to share the gospel. They don't need to see it, send missionaries. Just let God do it himself if he wants to save anybody. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that despite the clear commands that Jesus gave his church, there are still debates going on about this. It is simply... A commission, folks, a very single, fundamental, direct commission. There is no mistake in the commission. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. It's not just for the whites, not just for the blacks, not just for the Asians, not just for the Jews or the Gentiles, it's for everybody. To preach the good news to all people everywhere. And no, it is not simply a social gospel just pursuing acts of justice where we do the good things in Jesus' name. No, this gospel has to be preached. It has to be preached. It has to be spoken. It has to be declared and has to include repentance and forgiveness of sins. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is not negotiable. That is the essence of the gospel. Okay, so let's just get people to do it then. Let's get the, uh, let's hire some people. Let's put some ads on on seek.com. Who are, who is exactly going to do this stuff? Verse 48 the witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. Let me uh, put it this way. If you happen to be at a place 
as an innocent bystander where a crime happened to take place. You may, in fact, be called upon to be a witness, whether you like it or not. A witness is simply someone who gives evidence of what he or she saw. There's no embellishments, there's no retraction or from some aspect, you've got to tell the whole story, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Every now and then there is a call on the radio for witnesses who might have witnessed an accident on the road or a crime on the street to come forward. I'm sure, I'm more than sure that there are many who hear the message but refuse to put up their hand to give their name, to call back because they simply don't want to get involved because it is inconvenient. It's too much trouble. And the thought is, why should I care? I don't know, it's not, it didn't happen to me. And sometimes, depending on the gravity of the crime, because you know that this could happen as well, depending on the gravity of the crime, the accused and their cohorts might be looking out to get you, to silence you, so that you don't give witness. You know what? This is exactly what the enemy has been trying to do to the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. It's it's in full force right now, right throughout the world, despite the increase in social media and the, the news and everything else. So much of it is simply not reported. There are brothers and sisters undergoing persecution right now. The enemy is trying to silence us, silence the witnesses. Jesus drops the bombshell on his disciples. You are witnesses of all these things. They can't complain ignorance to the fact that we're there, they saw it. They were taught, they heard, they walked, they lived, they, they, they were there with Jesus the whole time. What's the Lord doing? What is the judge doing? What is the king doing? He is calling them to give evidence. They have been subpoenaed. Well, I didn't sign up for this. That's right, you didn't. You've been subpoenaed. You've been called. That's what the whole point of being called is. You've been chosen. I didn't put my hand up. That's right. You did it. It is a work of God. And that is what Jesus was telling the disciples to do, to tell others what they experienced, what they had seen, what they had heard, and now they are to declare. Of course, on a human level, the evidence could have simply died with them if they simply shut up about it and took it all to the grave. But that is not what happened. 1 John 1.1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's it. That's what we're doing. That's exactly what a witness is asked to do and what John is saying he's done. 
But what about the the costs? What about the commitment? There's a story of a hen and a pig. A hen and a pig approached a church and read the advertisement for the, the sermon topic on the next on the following Sunday. And this was a sermon topic advertised. It said, What can we do to help the poor? That was the sermon topic. What can we do to help the poor? Immediately the hen suggested that they feed them bacon and eggs. The pig thought for a moment and said, Hmm, there's only one thing wrong with feeding bacon and eggs to the poor. For you, it requires only a contribution. a gift, an offering. But for me, it requires total commitment. Isn't that what it's about? And that story serves to illustrate the key point and it's something that we, we don't like to think about too often. Everything comes at a cost. For an artist an athlete, a student, they must decide very early on just how serious he or she wants to, you know, how far they want to get in their field and if they really want to finish this and and really give it the best shot and train and study accordingly. It takes full commitment, not just half-hearted. The same thing applies to be an effective Christian. That is what we need. Total commitment. Thankfully, help is available. How and where from? The power, verse 49. says here in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Why is the ascension of our Lord so important? Because when Jesus went to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to guide and strengthen us, the church, in its witness, in its difficulties, empower them. Let's face it, if we were left to our own wisdom, our own devices, our own ideas, we'd get absolutely nowhere, nowhere. The transformation of these disciples, you can read in the book of Acts, It's not the acts of the apostles, it's actually the acts of the Holy Spirit. And how these cowards, these, they were nothing and God transformed them and the world took notice. And and, and what they were able to accomplish in the power of the Holy Spirit was simply unbelievable. It was incredible. If you're not for the power of the Holy Spirit, all of them will be hiding in our witness protection program, wouldn't they? Including us. In fear for our lives. Please notice the progression. We start with a group of men scared for their life, hiding away somewhere by the end of the book. The very last verse tells us that they, they ventured outside in public, in full public view, They were going to the temple to praise God. They weren't scared anymore. Then in Acts, we read from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. 
This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God. It's marvelous in our eyes what God is doing. In John 16, verses 7 to 8, But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt. No, 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 no. Let's stop right there. No, no. He will make everybody feel good. And we're going to have a great time. It'll be fantastic. Everybody will be prosperous. You will have what you want and it'll be great. No, 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 no. This is a bit I don't like, guys. Politically incorrect. He will convict the world of, of guilt. Guilt in what? In regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Wow, that's the good news? right. It's tough, isn't it? Why? Because the consequences are eternal. That's why we don't muck around with this stuff. We don't muck around with this stuff. We don't compromise. The price is too costly. It's too high. So what happens now? Well, until Jesus returns, we have Looks like we have our work cut out for us, don't we? It is not your job to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. That is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job, my job and your job is to be witnesses. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the difficulties of our days, we are to be witnesses. There's a story of a, a couple who took their uh, 11-year-old son and their daughter who was seven to a cave. And as always, when the, the tour reaches the deepest point in the cave, the guide turns off the lights to dramatise just how completely dark and silent it is below the earth's surface. I don't, if you've been on a cave tour, you know what I'm talking about. And the little girl suddenly enveloped in utter darkness began to cry. She was scared. And immediately the elder brother, who was only 11, said these words. And perhaps it's, uh, it's something that we need to be reminded of. Don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn on the lights. Somebody knows how to turn on the lights. You and I have been sent into the world as... You are the light, Jesus said. You are the light. Now, don't, don't look to the person next to you and say, well, it's your job, you've got to turn on the switch. It's not someone else, it's you and me. As believers in Christ, we are to turn on the light. That is the message of the gospel. The light is available, even when darkness in our times seem overwhelming. The reality is that God changes everything. And because, it, because God is real, people can see the light of his salvation. Prayers can be answered. Healing can take place. Sins can be forgiven. Marriages can be restored. 
relationships can be mended, your past can, rather than being a grave, your past can be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block to your future in Christ. Your life can be different because God is alive, because God is real, because God in Jesus Christ demonstrated his power in the resurrection. He is alive. That is what we need to tell the world as his witnesses. Amen.